Hello, this is Brooke Brown from Trending Topics with BB Podcast. Fantasy sports fans are winning huge cash prizes every day at DraftKings.com, America's favorite place to play daily fantasy sports. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitments, play whenever you want. So just pick your sport and draft your team. It's like a new season every time you play, so you're never stuck with the same players. Over $1 billion will be won at DraftKings.com this year, and you could be the next one to win big. Go to DraftKings.com now and enter promo code CULTURE to play free. That's CULTURE for free entry now at DraftKings.com. Not a fan of fantasy sports? Well, that's okay. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trendingtopicswithbb and choose from over 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audibletrial.com slash trendingtopicswithbb. That's audibletrial.com slash trending topics with BB and get started today. Why Audible? Audible content includes more than 180,000 audio programs from leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. Hello and welcome to another rousing edition of Trending Topics with BB. I am your humble host, B. Brooke Brown, hence the BB. Uh, I like to point that out. I don't know. Um, anyway, on this week's episode... You will, well, it features a, a, a fantastic man. Um, I know him by the name Superstar DJ Ross. Uh, he's known for being a party rocker all over the world, celebrity DJing, um, creating a global brand. Um, well, anyway, uh, he will talk a little bit more about that throughout the podcast. Um but before we get to that, I do want to let you know about where to find me, per se. Uh, you can find Trending Topics with BB episodes on brookinbrown.com. If you are not privy to the website, even though all my links are, are available there, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook. I do have my own way of doing that. Uh, there's links on my website, brookinbrown.com. Um, but on Twitter, I'm at saxy 15 um, and the same on Instagram and pretty much anywhere else, Tumblr. And uh, to find this podcast on SoundCloud as well, if you go to SoundCloud, it's uh, soundcloud.com slash trendingtopicswithbb. If you can't find it there, go to iTunes, look up Trending Topics with BB podcast and give us a good rating and a good comment if you are becoming a fan of what you hear on this podcast. So uh, to get back to what I was saying is uh, you will find the conversation interesting. Uh, you'll hear some stories about uh, this individual and how he knows some well-known celebrities. Uh, he has a documentary coming out. He'll talk a little bit about that and all kinds of goodness about the DJ game, previous DJs. Uh, we mentioned the late, great DJ AM. Um, and the style of DJing and the way things have changed. So without further ado uh, and giving away any of the goodness, I give you a superstar DJ, Ross. All right. Well, so, uh, Ross, again, I want to thank you for joining my, my podcast uh, this week. And I know we've been in touch over the years through social media and right. through my projects, and I've been following your projects. 
and I actually haven't had a chance to make it out to Atlanta to see you spin live, but one of these days I will. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's just kind of um, start with how you – I know we've talked about musical influences and how, you know, you kind of began with that, but how did you kind of get into you know, being a DJ and then and what – was that like one of your first loves? Did you always think you were going to be a DJ rocking the clubs or traveling the world? Um, I will give you the cliff notes on that. Uh, no, I <laughs> I did not think that. I, actually, at this point, I didn't think I'd still be DJing. But um, the the short version is my dad was a DJ. So I grew up in a house where, um, and then, you know, we're West Indian. So there was always music. And um, because my dad was a DJ and Back in, in that particular time, uh, mid seventies, it was, um, you listen to everything. So you could hear anything from James Brown to, uh, Charlie Daniels and, and, and his band in Alabama to Michael Jackson. There were Jackson Fives. So I, I kind of just was always around music. And what ended up happening was, uh, I had a cousin from New York that, I don't know, I, he brought a tape of someone DJing on one of the radio stations and, I'm listening and I'm trying to figure out how they're doing what they're doing with the records. I'm probably nine years old at the time. And I still have a, an old Fisher-Price um, record player at the house. And I just start messing around with that. And then I figured out a way to kind of jimmy the um, the knob on it. Because there was only like three or four knobs on the front. It's like really old school. But um, there was a knob that you could decide to play records and radio. And I figured out a way to jimmy it where the radio would play at the same time that the record would play. So once I figured out how to do that, I could learn to mix my records with the records that were on the radio, and that's how I learned to beat match initially. And as far as DJing, it's just one of those things where it grew from me messing around in the house and and getting a you know a full DJ set to actually DJing in my middle school. So I did all of the. In fact, I did my first DJ gig in fifth grade at my elementary school, and then I DJed all of my um, dances at the middle school and. DJed all the dances in high school, DJed all through college. It didn't take any school loans out. I basically played every fraternity, sorority party, et cetera. And then I quit, which is funny because um, I I thought I was done with it, and uh, I, I thought I would go off into a Fortune 500 company in the real world and get a real job, and I did that. And for some reason, it's just one of those things that I kind of kept messing around with the music. And then once I moved to Atlanta uh, after school in Virginia, um, I started DJing on the weekends at a at a uh, roller skating rink, one of the most popular ones here, and just began being heard by people uh, that mattered. And before you knew it, I was being invited out to the major clubs um, in the city, and it kind of just blew up from there. And I've been doing it ever since. Okay, so you didn't initially take to DJing as a career initially, so it was not well, one of those. No, it, well, it, well, here's the thing, you know, to, to, to answer that. It wasn't, unless you went radio, and, and at one point I was a radio DJ, but, you know, at the start, the only DJs we saw were Jam Master J with Run DMC, Grandmaster D with Houdini, um, you know, whoever had a DJ, you know, Mixmaster Ice with US, UTFO. So it wasn't like there was any kind of career path. There were no superstar DJs. There was no, you know, DJs or the rock stars, none of that. So you you really couldn't. You really couldn't visualize at that point a career as a as a DJ as I am now because it, it didn't exist. You know, not really. You had a few people in the house world that were doing things, but you know, the the general mainstream was not aware of that, and 
neither really was I. So, no, I, it was strictly a hobby that kind of kept going. Okay. Now, in terms, like you just mentioned, uh, another thing, well, to the young listeners that don't understand the work it was back in the day with the tapes and everything, but right. what I want to get at is the fact that, I mean, there's still radio today, but back in the day, radio DJs were actually DJs. Could you right. kind of expand a little bit on how things have adapted and how radio DJs today really aren't DJs, they just play a track, or it's just free, they just introduce it, so... Um, right. Well, well, well. Radio was different. Period. It was one of those things that you you really could count on the radio. Number one, radio personalities really had personalities, so it wasn't a situation where you hear literally the same twenty songs every hour. Um, you literally had uh, people who had the ability to interact with the city that they were in. Um, so it wasn't just the music that drew you in. It was also the DJ. The DJ not only was a personality, but in most cases, he you know, and even when I was in radio, I was this. I was the person that could handle the rush hour traffic um, broadcast, but also do the mixture. So it, it, it's really a different situation because nowadays you have um, so much consolidation in that in that business that the records that you hear on the radio are, you know, whether people call it payola or not, they're bought and paid for. Back then it was a big thing to actually break new artists and break new records. And it, it's just, it's, it's unfortunate because I think, some of the younger uh, listeners that, that you reference, I think they're missing out on an era that was just magical. So for me, to be able to listen to uh, a Mr. Magic or a Howie T or Red Alert, uh, you know, and all of those New York legends, um, and then hear them mix the records, not only would they talk it up and, and give you some background behind the artist or introduce you to somebody new, but they actually could really mix. Those are the, the experiences that shaped my DJ foundation, aside from my dad and what was happening in my house, these are the guys that basically, even to this day, you know, 20 years later, um, I'm still using things that I learned in the foundation, and it's just, it doesn't exist now. You're absolutely right. And do you think that may be a contributing factor? I mean, I, other than the advancement in technology, but a contributing factor into why people unless they have it in their car, the car is old, or they don't want to pay for, like, Internet radio or, or serious or any of those services today, do you think that's why a lot of people typically have shifted from original radio and that radio stations and corporations that, like, iHeartRadio and maybe CBS Radio, you know, some of these big corporations that have a lot of radio stations under them, are trying their best to stay relevant? Well, you know, I, I don't want to insult people that I do business with. But that being said, I'm a very honest person, so I'll, I'll say the truth. For me, especially someone who used to be, I was the youngest program director in Virginia history when I was a program director of a radio station there. And I had the opportunity to actually come in and, and formulate a sound for our station, who actually was in last place at the time, and I brought it to, from last all the way to second. And the, 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 the idea that I went into is I wanted to play really good music, and I wanted to dig into albums of artists and, and play records that we knew that may not be singles, but would be great things that, that you know we thought our listeners would enjoy. Now, that is just prehistoric at this point, because through consolidation, when you have like a clear channel, or an iHeartRadio that, that owns 
all of these cha- channels across the country, all of the programming sounds alike. And not only does the programming sound alike, it's a situation where it's the same 20 records being played literally 100 times a day. When you have that situation and you've gotten rid of the personalities and there's nothing but commercials over and over and over again, there's nothing to draw, there's nothing to maintain a listener's ear. There's no DJ that's doing anything with music that's exciting. You, you've heard the, the commercial so much you can recite it yourself, and the music is really just not that good. And then on top of it, if it is good, you've heard it four million times at this point, who needs to hear it four million in one? So, you know, I, I really think that more so than anything else, the repetition, the lack of originality, and the formula, the formulatic way that they go about programming nowadays has just killed the listeners. You know, the listeners are just leaving in droves because of that. Okay. Well, I just kind of wanted to get at, like, your thoughts based on the fact that you were, you know, working in radio. All right. right. So kind of to move along, I know we could talk for hours about it, but kind of to move along. So once you kind of got back into the hobby of uh, DJing, um, what kind of made you decide that you are going to kind of expand your brand and kind of go for it? Was it the influences from other DJs, like, um, you know, in in the business, like the huge notoriety that EDM was getting, not at all. Or... <laughs> not at all. I, I can I can stop that question now because my answer is not going to be sexy, but my my answer is going to be honest. My decision to actually become a professional DJ was out of necessity because I was working for a Fortune 500 company that had a division that was paper based, and that industry was moving towards internet based, and our division just disappeared. So when when I was faced with that professional situation not being there, but the hobby being there, I started looking at the hobby differently. And what ended up happening was, out of necessity, I had to put more muscle behind the DJ business because it was bringing in money, but it wasn't something that I was sustaining my life with. And luckily for me, this predates EDM and predates, you know, uh, the explosion of DJ's popularity in the U.S., so I was positioning myself and, and now moving around in celebrity circles and things of that nature before the, the DJ explosion came. So by the time that, you know, things were being called EDM and all of this, and, and even during the, the early uh, DJ AM days, um, I was already moving around just because I decided to get serious. So I know a lot of people, when they're, they're entering the business, they look at the big DJs and that's their inspiration. That wasn't, that wasn't my case. My case was out of necessity. I had to take this thing that I had been doing since I was a child and really make it become a career. And luckily for me, it worked. Okay. Well, you know, for those who may have a different perspective on it. So you just mentioned somebody that I know you and I have talked about. and um, You have mixes to attribute this person. But can you kind of talk about DJM and the influence and kind of, really what's important about the open format and DJing other than just playing what, you know, somebody tells you to play? Right. Yeah, open format, um, what a lot of people don't understand is open format was the original way that hip-hop DJs began to play. And if a person doubts that, all they have to do is go and pull up Grandmaster Flash's Adventures on the Wheels of Steel and listen to that. you got Sheik. Good times. You've got Blondie, Rapture, a variety of things being mixed in that are not traditional. So you didn't, even though it was considered to be a hip hop record based upon hip hop culture, 
is was not a traditionally hip hop record. That's how everything started. Africa Bambada and these guys were always throwing in disco records and, you know, Eurobeat records and things of that nature at the very beginning. So somewhere along the line, we had lost that. Once hip-hop actually became uh, a thing and there was actually rap records, you would get a rap set, you'd get a, a, a reggae set, and maybe an old-school set, old-school old R&B set. But that's about it. That was the extent of um, traditional uh, open format. The thing I liked about AM was AM – and though he wasn't the person that necessarily pioneered it, he was the person that really helped true new school open format move to the forefront. So what that means is now you can play not only rap records, but you can also mix in pop, you can mix in rock, you can mix in classics from, from disco to R&B, et cetera, and so on. And I loved that. I loved that era between 2004 and 2010-ish where – DJs were truly trying to be daring. DJs were really looking for records like the Queen records and, um, you know, a variety of things that you just wouldn't hear in a nightclub and truly taking people on a musical journey. Now, that's kind of changed nowadays. It's still open format, but it's not as daring as it was when DJM was still at the forefront of it. I think DJs now are playing it a bit too safe. But open format to me is if you can really play that, if you can not lose a crowd, that, to me, means you're a real DJ, and that's one of the things that I think a lot of this era of new DJs just doesn't understand. Right. And I, I had the privilege of um, seeing A.M. Spin before he passed away in right. Vegas, and it was what I would have I, – I will say this again. It's probably one of the most fun nights I've ever had in a Vegas nightclub mm. since then – there's been nothing to compare it. I mean, even though I am an EDM junkie, I'm not right. going to be, like, saying that going to see Tiesto or Calvin Harris or whoever's designing the residency now will right. measure up to the way he was because of that reason, because it was such an eclectic mix of music mixed perfectly that it made sense. And right. I missed that part of, going out to a club. I think that's why a lot of people, I don't know, people still go out to clubs, but people have a different sense of what it means to be in a club or to go um, see a DJ or something because of the shift. Now, can you explain a little bit about what your thoughts on why maybe it did, other than, you know, tragically losing AM, but other than that why things just because I you know I like EDM but it seems like it's taken over Vegas and other parts of the, you know of the country right. even Miami why are we having it so it's just it seems like it's you either like hip hop or you either like EDM and there's no mix anymore. Well, good question. Um, the push is behind EDM. And it's interesting to me because being someone who was touring when electronic music was blowing up before it hit the, uh, the U.S. and it wasn't even being called EDM, and you, for the most part you would hear the, the subgenres like, you know, electro or dubstep or, you know, et cetera and so on. And then all of a sudden, uh, for branding purposes, electronic dance music, which, you know, it all is electronic dance music, so it's kind of a, it's a weird title, but it, that became the brand that everything fell under. So with that, that being said, even though hip-hop is, well, what's called today's hip-hop is still doing what it's doing, EDM has been the only genre in the last 10 years to show growth. 
country music is sustained, but as far as a growing, a growing music genre, it has been EDM. And EDM is accessible. You don't have a situation where you have um, DJs that are actually acting stupid or killing people or, or doing, you know, dumb things. I mean, these are really, for the most part, you know, in most cases, really clean-cut, good-looking guys that you can put in, in a Ralph Lauren ad and things of that nature. So it sounds like I'm off the subject, but the reason I'm saying that is because EDM is in a place that hip-hop was in probably 15 to 17 years ago, where you had records that actually would translate well to a Sprite commercial. You had artists that would translate well to a Chrysler commercial. Right now, you can't put a Young Thug in a commercial. You can't put a Future in a commercial. So hip-hop is not viable in regards to a situation where you could elevate it the same way that EDM. And then EDM is just one of those things where there's a new culture that goes with it. And that's one of the reasons I like it. I like it a lot because people are out to have a good time. Now, me being an old-school hip-hop head, and that's where I started, I remember when hip-hop was that. I remember when hip-hop was not dangerous. So you have a situation where club owners are a lot more comfortable booking acts that play EDM more so than, you know, a situation where it's a hip-hop act. Number one, you can sell tables for higher and number two the crowd's better looking um number three it's one of those things that is a wider range of people that you can market your entertainment to and it, it just kind of from a business standpoint makes sense now all of that being said when it comes down to the dj component to that equation we have one million new djs that have jumped in because they want to be the next calvin harris they want to be the next tiesto and they go get the haircuts and they get the the uh you know, the fashionable clothes, and they do the photo shoots and all this kind of stuff. Um, that is my concern with EDM. We as hip-hop DJs couldn't play out until we were dope. And I think that's what people don't understand. The era that I came up in, we wanted to be known for being dope. This era, people want to be known and then try to be dope. It's the cart before the horse. So a lot of times when you're, someone like yourself is in the, is in the crowd, you can tell the difference between the guy who's really dope and known for being dope versus the guy who's being known, who's just known and popular, who's playing records. And that affects the club environment. That affects the entertainment. You just said before you asked me the question that you, you don't get that feeling that an AM gave you. Well, AM become, became popular because AM was dope. And that's one of the major differences, if, if not the major difference. So with that being said, and the difference, is it harder now because everybody wants to be a DJ all of a sudden because they've seen the success and and the marketability of some of the big names? Is it harder now for those who came up like you to – I mean, you, you've had your success in your own way, but right. to be respected in the game? You know, again, I uh... – I speak honestly, so I'm going to answer this honestly. I don't love it the way I used to. And it, it's funny because it's the best of times and the worst of times at the same damn time. And it's funny, you know, we, we say this all the time. And what I mean by that is, as DJs, we've never been more visible. There's never been a situation. You have to understand, someone like myself, I've never been managed by anybody, but I've had, you know, endorsement deals with Monster, Beats by Dre, Sony, uh, Native Instruments, um, uh, you know, a variety of Adidas, a variety of companies that, that I've done business with just based upon me being a dope DJ who's handled his brand well. Um, 
that would have never happened 10 years ago. It just, it just didn't exist. So when I think about the opportunities to be able to move around and, and, and do things based upon the popularity, it's a wonderful thing. Now, the flip of that is I've never played a free DJ set in my life. So when I look at the young guys who are getting in the game and they have been sold this bill of goods where they think that just because they're getting an opportunity to play at a popular club or a popular party or whatever and their name is on the flyer and they get a chance to have a guest list, they're more excited about being able to say they're a DJ and have their name on the flyer versus us where we had to earn our way up. And for me, I think you can be the veteran who's mad. And on social media, sometimes I had to catch myself because I didn't want to be that guy. I didn't want to be giving voice all the time to just everything that sucks about this new era. But the flip of that is, and I'm writing a book that actually addresses this. Um, the name of the book is How to Be a Million Dollar DJ. And, and I, I decided to write that to kind of give a blueprint, <laughs> you know, because it's one of those things to, you know, those guys that, that go and play for free and they just want to be seen by girls and things of that nature, they don't last more than two to three years. I mean, I can pretty much predict when a person starts, if that's their game, when they're going to exit. And I've been very good at it. So I I don't love it anymore because – well, I'm not saying anymore. I don't love it the way I used to because the authenticity is in question now, if that makes sense. Right. So the intentions, everybody's intentions has changed as opposed to the way – when you began, if that understanding yeah, even even veterans, even veterans have surprised me, um, you know, because I was doing the electronic thing before it was sexy, you know, so, you know, me being a black DJ, um, there weren't a lot of black DJs doing it, especially on the East Coast. So unless they were like house guys, like the Chicago Detroit dudes. But for the most part, you know, there weren't guys like me that started out in hip hop that you gotta understand, like I didn't, I didn't switch over to electronic music because the electronic wave happened. I, I started doing it because I liked it, because I was touring and I was overseas and I was hearing this music for the first time. This was 2004, 2005, 2006, and so I'm hearing it. And I'm like, yo, I want to play that too. So my, my moving over to the electronic world was purely organic. Now. The people that you're seeing over the last three years, they're, in most cases, not organic. They see what's happening, and they want to get some. As they, when I'm approached by black DJs, they all say the same thing. They also want to learn how to get some of that, that EDM money. I hate that phrase because that, to me, means you don't know the music. You just want to come over and cash out, and I don't respect that. So when I make a statement where I say I don't love it as much as I do, as I used to, it has a lot of moving pieces to it. It's because of statements like that and, and, and the fakery and the, the Paris Hilton that, you know, you have to understand, I used to do Paris Hilton parties, and she really didn't give a damn about DJs. <laughs> you know, so to see her be a DJ and then very quickly become one of the highest paid DJs, imagine yeah, how someone like myself That's I've been wondering. Feels. How the hell, sorry to interrupt you, but, like, no, no, how no, the hell no. did that happen? Well, like, it, money. So you, 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 here's the thing. She has but a she's brand. She's not relevant anymore. But so. she, see, and we think that. But overseas, and that's the one thing that I that I have learned with, through touring overseas. We may think that a person is done. We may think that a person is dumb, 
We might think a person has no, you know, no validity whatsoever, and you take them to Russia, or you take them to Brazil, or you take them wherever, and there are people waiting around the corner. I'm talking about 30,000 deep to see this person who we have said is dead in the water. And that's what happened. Because Paris is not making that big money here in the U.S. primarily. She's making maybe 10% of it, you know, every now and then in Atlantic City, every now and then some L.A. stuff, every now and then some Vegas stuff. But in Dubai and um, in Ibiza, she's killing it. And they don't care that she can't DJ because she's getting a pre-made mix. So she gets up there, she presses the button, puts the headphones on, and she waves her hand and waves her hair. It's a spectacle. So as a club owner in Ibiza, I can now charge the U.S. equivalent of $100 to $200, if not more than that, for general admission. That doesn't even say what the tables are going for. So it's worth it to them. And I used to be angry as I don't know what about that. Because I personally, I mean, you can look at flyers in my in my documentary. You can see parties that her and I have done together. This is back before she blew up. So to see her, and I'll say blew up as a DJ, let me say that, um, to know personally how she felt about DJs and then to see this happen, it's a bit tough, if that makes sense. Right. So that's what I kind of like, I understand that maybe the relevancy is different, as you just mentioned, throughout the world. Right. I may not be astute to that. But I've also heard other people who have traveled abroad or um, feel like they're part of the scene to say the same thing. Like, why is someone like Paris Hilton getting the notoriety yeah. as a DJ? And And then I've also seen, as you just mentioned, that to kind of expand on that, the whole press a button, like have a, a pre-mix thing, like there's been some accusations that Tiesto, what, you know, did that, and then he's made, like, at, like, Ultra last year, he screwed up and was like, see, I'm not pre-mixed lie or whatever. Like, there's been, is it more, people more skeptical of the skills of DJs because someone like Paris Hilton is popular well when you have all right paris hilton really doesn't belong in the conversation about djs even though she's making a lot of money um as a dj we all know that she's a parlor trick we all know she's a she's a novelty act and so we no longer really include her in any real dj conversations because she doesn't care anything she's just it was another way for her to make big money so from a strictly commercial standpoint I understood it, and I couldn't knock the hustle. So I don't know if you followed that period. Where I, at one point when it first happened, I was blacking out um, on it. I, I, I couldn't stand it, and I made it known that I couldn't stand it. Then I thought about it. Right. Because someone said to me, you know, she's taking money away from real DJs. And I thought about what they said, and I, and I had a reply, and I said this to them, and I, and I shared this on Twitter. You show me the venue that you, Mr. Real DJ, could go into and because of your name being on the flyer, the, the club owner could now charge $250 for general admission, charge $10,000 for a table, X amount of dollars for a bottle. You show me that venue where you, Mr. Real DJ, could do that. And the person understood my point. She's not taking anything from us. That spot didn't exist for us. She's a novelty act. So she's no different than Aerosmith coming and playing 
at a place that a band in town ordinarily plays, and it's a garage band. Aerosmith is a bigger name. They can charge bigger ticket prices, and they're not really taking anything away from that garbage band because that garbage band is not at that branded level yet. And once I began to understand it from that standpoint, I was no longer angry because I realized that she's not taking any, anything from me. Would I like to occupy that space in front of that crowd? Yes. But as superstar DJ Rose, my brand is my brand recognition is not as large as Paris Hilton's brand recognition. DJ and be damned. You, you see what I'm saying? So it, I, I think we can sit around and spin our wheels and be angry about it and criticizing her if we want. But I think if we if we see it for what it actually is, we accept it and we move on. You know? Okay. Yeah. No, that makes complete sense. All right. So to can kind of continue on, you know, you mentioned your brand and how it's expanded, and I've even seen it expand since I I met you on Twitter. Right. I don't know how many years now, but. Right. It's kind of crazy. Um, so to kind of talk about, like, how your brand has expanded to from being just that hobby to the DJ to known as a party rocker, like you say. So, and I've seen, I've heard your mixes and I've seen videos, so I know you are. So it's not like right. I'm just, to the listeners that will listen to this podcast, I'm not just blowing smoke. But the, the point I'm trying to get at is kind of, What's important to have that brand to market to those, and 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 also why is it so important to have a club like the one like Havana and Atlanta and clubs that you you have residencies? Why is residency become so important? Okay, let's um let's handle the brand part of it first. Now, what a lot of people don't understand, I think a lot of people know me as Rose, and they and they their knowledge of me starts with that. What a lot of people don't know is I was a hip-hop DJ for years before that under the name Rob Lover. And what it ended up happening was, you know, great story, is we I was on tour. I was uh, Christina Milian's uh, tour DJ, and we were on tour in Russia. And I'll never forget this because it was a life-changing moment for me. We were playing a club called Infinity in Moscow, and uh, we were on tour with Ja Rule at the time. And, and Ja Rule's DJ, DJ D-Life, and I were sitting in the club listening to DJ player at Infinity, because, you know, we weren't playing at the club. We just happened to be there. So we're listening, and the guy is playing one of the, the – probably one of the first real open format sets I'd heard in a nightclub. I'd heard him on the radio, and I'd seen AM, you know, in small things, but this was a super club. And I really hadn't seen or heard a DJ play that way in a super club. So I'm listening. And – Nirvana and you know, Sweet Home Alabama. And mind you, again, we're in Moscow. And I'm listening to this guy. And I was like, I can do that. I have those records. But the venues that I'm in, if I try to do that, I'm done. So the 15-hour flight back to the U.S. the entire time that when I wasn't sleeping, it almost felt like it, it, was a, it was a pivotal moment for me. And what's, what's interesting about it is, Prior to that, I had begun working on a mix um, under the Rob Lover name. The mix was called How to Party Like a Rockstar. And I was mixing rock records and hip-hop records and pop records and just for fun. I didn't even think I was going to put it out. 
right? No idea why I was putting so much time and effort into it. And in that, on, on, on that flight back, after I listened to him, I understood why. Because the universe was telling me that the Rob Lover thing had kind of run its course. And so by the time that I got back to the U.S., I had made a decision that I didn't know what I was going to do, per se, but I knew I was going to do something. I knew I was going to change. So long story short, I started trying to figure out ways to um, get booked to play different types of music. Now, with the name that I had, that wasn't easy because it, it, it harkened to hip-hop and kind of had an old-school feel, it, and it just kind of wasn't doing what it needed to do. Well, I started sending out that mix once I finished it, the Hot Party to a Rockstar, a party like a Rockstar mix. Now, an interesting thing, interesting story, is I actually met Kim Kardashian in uh, L.A. at Paris Hilton's record release party in 2006. Now, keep in mind, this was before the sex tape, and, I mean, she was literally Paris' homegirl. Nobody knew who the hell she was outside of L.A., so anyway, I send a, a bunch of the, the CDs out to them at Dash, at the, the Dash store. Well, Kim hits me up, and she's like, yo, I love it. And she, it's something she gave it out to all the friends. They, she plays it in the car, even to the point that she wanted to do a drop for the second edition, which is, you know, we actually play that in my documentary, her drop. Um, that interaction with them and letting people all over L.A. hear it convinced me that switching was the right thing to do. Now, Ended up going to a club that was opening in Atlanta that had kind of like a rockish, kind of gothish kind of feel, and we're looking for DJs. Went in, took a meeting, told them who I was, um, and the last thing I did was I gave them that CD. At this point, I'm still Rob Lover. So we talk about a week later, and they're like, it hasn't come out of the CD player since, since you gave it to us. So I said, okay. So they said they'd like to have me as a resident. I said, well, cool, let's do this. Let me play, but can I play under a new name that I've been thinking about? And the name was Rose. And a lot of people don't don't realize that Rose actually came from the Greek mythology story of Eros. I just took the E off because I thought DJ Eros sounded stupid. So um, taking the E off and just making it Rose and doing research to make sure that nowhere in the world that that name actually meant anything, and it didn't. So it gave me an opportunity to define it. So when it comes down to, to, to the branding aspect of it, I created a logo, which I've never had a logo for Rob Lover, um, the Winged Dragon, which I still use to this day been very effective. I also made a crucial decision, and that decision was this, and I hope that um, you know, if you have any young DJs that listen to your podcast, I hope they pay attention to this. I made a decision that I would never play a DJ gig without a cap. And if you ever look at any of my DJ pictures as Rose from the very beginning, 2008 is when I started doing the Rose thing. If you look at every last one of my pictures, you notice you never really see my eyes in the picture. All of that was by design. And where it came from was Batman. Literally, if you think about Batman, like, the pictures of Batman are always shadowy, and you don't really I, – I took that. So, essentially, the cap being pulled down over my eyes was my cowl. And the flip side of that is I remember when I was a kid, LL Cool J never performed without his hat. So, even if you didn't know who he was, you, oh, the dude with the Kango. So, for me, I was like, okay, if a person doesn't know who DJ Rose is, oh, you know, the black dude with the cap. You see what I'm saying? It, it, it became right. part of my branding because, and it, it has worked like a charm. <laughs> it, re it really has. It, it has exceeded anything that I ever expected. But the point that I'm making is, with all that being said, before I started, I had a vision of what I was attempting to do. I didn't have to worry about being dope because I was already a good DJ. I mean, it's not like I was a new DJ. But in order to separate myself 
I wanted to be the black dude in the hat pulled low that plays music that wasn't hip hop. That's essentially what I wanted to be. If a person saw that and then got interested and in, in, in dug deeper, then they could find out about who Rose was and listen to my mixes and come to my parties, et cetera, and so on. But at the very least, I wanted them to be able to say, that black dude who wears the hat, he's good. And that was enough to actually have enough tat- attached to my brand to grow. And, it, and just that simple way of looking at it has been tremendously successful for me. And it's led to all the other things that I've done. Completely understand. So in terms of, like, kind of like the second part of my question, do you think that a lot of DJs or people that are want to be upcoming DJs don't think of something, don't think of them what they do first and then brand accordingly? Or is it just a lack of business sense? Well, the, the biggest problem is that it's Mr. Me Too. That's the biggest problem. Mr. Me Too attitude that, oh, Calvin Harris has his hair cut, cut like that. Oh, Calvin Harris has his shirt open like this. Or Tiesto did, you know, wears these kind of headphones. That's what the problem is. Because when you have a sea of new people who just want to be DJs, like, you have a situation where you got actors being DJs and porn stars being DJs and Paris Hilton's being DJs and athletes being DJs. I mean, you name it, people that you, I mean, you love music. You've been watching this for a minute. You see people mm-hmm. every day they jump in the pool and you're like, when the hell did they get there? Like, what are they doing, DJ? Right? The problem is because it's now the popular thing to do. Now, understand, I came up in the era where the DJ was in the corner. Nobody even gave a damn who was over there. You couldn't even see us, right? <laughs> There's no light, you know, none of that stuff. We're just over there playing music and nobody cared. So the era that we came up in, we literally did it for the love of the art and the music because nobody gave a damn. The money wasn't that great, and there was no, you know, there was no companies beating down on doors for endorsement. None of that was happening. So these newer guys, because they didn't come from that era and that mindset, they're looking at what's working and emulating it. And if you don't believe me, go to YouTube, pull up any festival. It doesn't matter which one. It could be Coachella. It could be, you know, Ultra whatever. And you tell me how many DJs you see come from behind the, the decks, and stand up on the table. Just that alone. Just tell me how many people you see do that. And the reason that I oh, point I, that out is you, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? You've seen this, right? Oh, yeah. There's even, was, there's even a blog I, called DJ Standing on Tables that mocks it. Yeah, because I was even watching, um, I'm a fan of Maxwell and Grosso, and I was actually watching their right. Coachella um, set on YouTube the other day. And, like, there, and I've seen it when they played Tomorrowland, I've seen it when they played Ultra, and I noticed at some point, either one or the other or both, by the end of it, they're on the, like, table, you know, talking on the mic, um, yeah. which kind of takes, I've always not understood why, that's the one thing that I can have a criticism in my own personal experience is, like, I, I get, you know, saying a thank you or whatever. But what's with the, like, we have to get up above everybody? Like, it, we already see you on a big, massive screen in those situations because it's a massive festival. Right. Why? <laughs> and it's already a spectacle. I mean, you've already had um, your vocalists, you sing the vocals on the track right. in, like, costumes, or you have the go-go dancers, or you have the pyrotechnics going off. Why must they get on 
Like, I'm, I've never understood that. It's a spectacle now. And, and, and that's the thing, you know, when you think about these guys, now here's the thing. Everybody thinks that they're branding, right? I even hate that word because, you know, it's one of those things that is being misused now. Everyone thinks that they're branding when they go and they, they, they get the little the skinny jeans and the, the, the black DJT and the man bun and, you know, you name all this crap that these guys are doing. I'm specifically speaking about the EDM guys. And, and not to clown them. I'm, and I'm not, you know, sometimes it might sound a little cynical. But you have to understand, I am a lifer. So it's not like I'm Johnny come lately and I haven't seen all this stuff. I mean, I've seen from the very beginning to this. So, you know, I have very um, definitive viewpoints on this. So on the EDM side specifically, when you look at how most of these guys are entering, the problem that I have with it is if your brand is derivative of a derivative, of a derivative, right, what's the right. part? Like, if you, if, if, number one, if it's a festival and there's 17 DJs, that's uh, probably a bit much, there's 10 DJs, and from the opening guy who wants to get his off to, so he's up there jumping around to 45 people and he's fist pumping and he's using posing and twisting knobs and all this other kind of stuff, and then the next guy comes up and he does the same thing, he's kind of wearing the same outfit, probably playing remixes of the same damn records, and the next guy comes up, by the time you've gotten to TSO, if you could survive all of that, you're not high as a kite by the time he gets on stage. Um, you kind of expect something different. Now, to his credit, Tiesto does have a different presentation because the, Tiesto's presentation is not derivative of someone else. He's Tiesto, and he's been Tiesto yeah. before there was a such thing as EDM. He was a trans guy. So yeah. what I'd like to see newer DJs attempt to do, be inspired by as many DJs as you want. However, I took a year between the time that I knew I was going to be Rose to the time that I played my first gig as Rose to figure out who in the hell Rose was going to be. And that's important because coming from a hip-hop background, I didn't even know how to dress for top 40 clubs or open format clubs or electronic clubs. I had no idea because I couldn't come in and look like the hip-hop black guy. I wouldn't get booked. So I literally took time to figure out what clothing made sense I established my uh, connection with Adidas during that particular time, so I knew that one of my branding components would be that I would wear shell toes at every performance, regardless of where I was. So you got the cap and you got the shell toes. That's a branding thing that's me. Um, so when I came out, I didn't look like anybody. You see what I'm saying? Like, I, I didn't – I did. not only did I not sound like anybody, but I didn't look like them either. And that, to me, I knew was a competitive advantage, and I used it. And so if you look like the other 12 million EDM DJs that come and want to book play, gives a shit. I mean, part of my language, but really, like, you can't say you're better because you got the same records. You see what I'm saying? You might mix them in a different order, but you've got the same records. So right. what is it about you that's unique? I mean, yeah, you can bring in a guest list this week. But what about the next three to four weeks? You've got to be good to make people want to come back. Because your friends are eventually going to get busy. So your friends can't, you can't depend upon a guest list. Like me personally, I've never turned in a guest list in my life. I don't sell tables. That's not what I do. I'm a DJ. The way I look at it, the marketing people, they sell the tables. I bring people in because I'm good. And that's the difference. These new guys don't care about being good. They just want to be there. Right. 
So that aside, well, another thing that maybe we should address too, um, minus the business side, I want to get at why maybe in the last 10 to 15 years when the popularity of being a DJ has happened. Maybe this is after – I don't think it's been that long. I think after the late AM or – or why do DJs find the need to use sound effects, preferably the air horn, every five seconds? (laughs) Oh, my God. You know, it's one of those things, you know, and I I, I know I've used it before, too. Um, It's one of those things. The air horn goes back – all right, let me speak for myself. People from my era were using the air horn before it was actually called. It used to be called boat horn or whatever it is. It was some called something different. But um, it was one of those things that came from. You got to understand, Cool DJ Hurt was the one that actually started the whole DJ thing in the park, and like he and that was a Jamaican sound system. So air horns come all the way back to the early seventies. When they were doing these big big parties in the, in the in the park, and because it actually was Jamaican guys doing the sound systems, you know, you know, they would call them um, sound systems. The, the battling DJ groups were called sound systems. Then they, of course, incorporate the air horn, which is you know part of the Jamaican DJ culture, but selector culture. Um, and it is it is moved from hip hop all the way over to top forty. Now, when I hear Electronic guys do it. It's a little weird, but I understand that too because AM was the person that really, back when it was called Electro in, in LA in 2004, 2005, 2006, in his mixes, you know, AM would use it a lot, even when he was playing like a lot of like you know higher end music. So it just kind of kept going from there. Now, if you're a new guy, and the only mixes that you're coming up on, especially the guys that go to YouTube and listen to all of AM stuff, that's all you hear. So that's why you keep hearing not only the air horn, but you hear the DMC sample. Oh, yeah. That's where you get it from because they all came up on that era of music on YouTube. And they played it over and over and over. So whatever samples that AM found or whoever was popular, these guys will go find them too. The way that AM used it, they would use it. So that's how it came to a situation where you got this whole generation of DJs abusing the same samples it all sound in the light because they're, they're inspirations. Like, see, here's, here's the difference, and I'll just try to make this real quick. I came up in an era where there was no YouTube. So if I'm at a concert and I see Jam Master J do a routine of Peter Piper, I've got to try to remember what he did, come home, get my doubles out, and try to emulate that from memory. So there was no, re- there was no way for us to copy exactly because we had nothing to reference. You, you see what I'm saying? But these guys could go to YouTube or whatever and play the same mix over and over and over and over and over. So they've actually mastered what the person did exactly. And once you do that, that now becomes a part of your DJ sensibility, and you start finding yourself doing things out of habit that you probably shouldn't be doing. And that's really kind of how the air horn thing really has kind of gotten out of control because everybody's source is the same. You see what I'm If that makes sense. Right. So – there's just no originality because they're looking no. at what AM did back in the day and other DJs that were, you know, new and yeah. at that at time. Yep. And now that's what they do. Like, 
like me, I've never played, I've never, now here's the funny thing. I've used air horns on mixes when it's appropriate, but I've never used an air horn in a live set in my life. Not even once. I've never done it. Like never, never, even when I played hip hop, have I used an air horn in a live set in a club. I never understood that. It, it, to me, it didn't make any sense and it just wasn't a part of what I do. But these guys, not only do they do it on the radio mixes on their, you know, their mixtapes, but they're also doing it in clubs and, and people in the club looking like, what the hell are you doing? You know, so I know exactly what you're talking about because I've heard it too. Yeah, like, I didn't mind it when AM did it because I remember right. those samples. Right. But he didn't do it every other song. He did right. it when it was necessary and he could gauge the the mood of the room. Right. What I get at is the, the DJs that they'll be finally playing music that people are liking because they're they're on a roll and then they just kind right. of stop and play a bunch of air horns and you're like yep. why? And then a DJ drop. You are listening to DJ so and so as if anyone gives yeah. it. Yeah, and, and yeah. that's is it necessary to drop what DJ name is during the set though? Like I've never understood no. that either. No, it, it you know, that whole thing is a new thing, new-ish thing. What I mean by that is it's a new era thing. We, now in the hip-hop world, I call from, I come from call and response, so that's a lot of, you know, the kick pre DJ Cool, you're on the mic and, you know, interacting with the crowd and you're saying something, they're saying something back. And, you know, it's, it, if you're in a party where that's appropriate, it's a great thing. It's, it's a good party. Everybody's having a good time. Now, that doesn't necessarily work everywhere. You know, you can't necessarily be an EDM DJ um, that does that. Now, people like myself and Chucky, because Chucky comes from a, you know, a background that has a hip-hop element to it, too. So, yes, we both do mic work during our EDM sets, and we do have situations where the crowd is interacting with us, things that we're saying on the mic, not the whole time, but it, we do do that because that is, number one, it's just kind of like us being true to our roots, but it also is one of those things that just for the style of it, we play aggressively. So it works well for us live. Now, Using a drop? This is DJ Soap. I don't know. It's not a radio show. So to me, it's not appropriate. You're killing the vibe. Like, I don't ha if my name is on the flyer and I've introduced myself before I've gone on or whoever's brought me on has introduced myself, has introduced me. After I've said, you know, hey, this is DJ Rose, you know, hope you're ready, you know, put your hands, whatever it is that I'm saying to get the crowd primed and let them know that I'm there, I really don't need to say much else after that. Let's go. Let's party and I need to be DJing. You know what I mean? I don't need to be doing a radio mix. So from a DJ standpoint, I'm not a fan of that, and, and I've heard it in clubs where it's disruptive to the to the vibe. So I know exactly what you mean. Right. So yeah, to get at that, that just doesn't make sense, really. To right, it doesn't. And it, and it but everybody wants to be known, though. That's the key. You, you know, they're not necessarily worried about rocking the party. You know, we, you know, I'm at a, I'm a resident DJ, music director of one of the top uh, clubs in the U.S. Uh, Havana Club, and we've been a top 100 club for five, six years. I think going on our sixth year, and we just recently started bringing in uh, guest DJs from other markets that are supposedly known and popular guys. And I, and I'm not going to slam anybody, but one thing I will say is this: in watching these guys, these guys are proficient in mixing but have no clue on how to move a party. And that is 
where the disparity between someone like yourself and you're saying, well, I really haven't seen anybody rock it like AM since AM and the DJ is. That's where the disparity lies because these guys all came up in the era of an AM. So they're so busy attempting to show that they're good at mashing up and scratching and things of that nature, but the people in the audience really don't give a damn. They came to have a good time. It's someone's birthday. It's someone's, you know, an office pool is out. They're all having a good time. It's someone's bachelor, bachelorette party or bachelor party. They just want a party. They don't care if you get scratched. They don't care about your DJ drop, and they damn sure don't care about your air horn. They want you to rock the party. That's what they're going to remember. And these new generations, the new generation of DJs doesn't understand that. They want to show all their tricks. No one cares. You know what I mean? And that's the difference. That's, that's why when, when the comment that you made at the very beginning about you don't enjoy it the way that you used to because you're not getting DJs who care about rocking parties as much anymore. And it matters. The DJs want to be celebrities now. Right. They want you to care that they're there. And I imagine that's probably why there's been such a shift towards EDM as it is now. Mm. Because a he- heavy what part of the culture is, is that kind of party atmosphere. You're there to party and have a good time. You're not there to just the sake of being seen or see somebody else. Yeah. That makes yeah, I mean, and and the the thing is, what I hope, sincerely, and I'm already knowing that my hope is going out the window, but it used to be a situation where the DJs in the electronic scene wanted to play the best records, right? And it, it, it's not really necessarily about playing records that everyone knows. It's about setting a vibe and having a certain kind of energy. So you can you can still break records in the electronic scene without having to go through and play everything that everyone knows, like, you know, of course, like the, the Tiesto, and well, not Tiesto, but the Zed records and, you know, um, all the Calvin Harris. You don't have to run through all of those. You can just play good records. Um, what is starting to happen, though, is because the DJ, the EDM DJs want to be known, too. They're now starting to get away from just selling a vibe. They're selling themselves and popular records, too. And that's not a good sign. Because, again, it's taking – here's the thing. If you and I are in a club and I'm the DJ and you're the person who's there to have a good time, I'm important, but you're actually more important. Because if you decide to leave and I remain and everyone who thinks like you leaves, no matter what I do, it doesn't matter. Everybody's gone, right? People who think like you are gone. So my job is to service you, not the other way around. Your job is not to come and be in reverence of me as a DJ, if that makes sense, because that's where the that's where the disparity is, is, is happening. You have a situation where the DJs expect you to come in to want to see them and, and be in reverence of them, rather than coming in and saying, you know what, I'm going to kill it tonight, and I'm going to make sure that they have a great time. That's the way it used to be. Right. And I still carry that. Even though my brand is important, it's more important that at the end of the night, you come to me because you're still there, because I was good. You come to me or come to whoever I see you walking down, you're like, your DJ killed it. Like, you don't even have to know my name. But if I serviced you to the point 
that you stayed and you're sweating and you got shoes off and, you know, the lights are up, but you're still there, you and your friends are smiling and taking selfies, that means that I did my job. That means that I took care of you as a customer and you are now happy and the transaction was successful. But you have to be a mature DJ to actually understand that. And I'm not saying mature in age. You have to be mature in your professionalism to understand that the, that the concert gore, the club gore, is the most important part of the equation. Gotcha. All right. Well, I do want to touch on your documentary before um, we wrap this up. Um, sure. It's almost been an hour already. We could talk for hours. Right. But yeah, we we'll have to do We'll probably have to do this uh, another episode of the podcast in the future. But let's let's. I really want to let people know about your documentary and and kind right. of where they can go and download it and see it. And um, I've seen the trailer; it's epic. I'm. Thank you. I haven't seen it yet. Like right. I haven't because I don't know all the details of where to get it, which is why right. I'm kind of. Um, sure. But I've been on your website. I I know you've been working hard on this for years. Right. I've seen. Right. I've seen the update. So update. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so just kind of, I guess, just talk about kind of the idea of of. I mean, it's it's a must see. I feel like people need to see it based on the trailer. And I guess maybe because I'm using the documentaries in general, but I think this is right. awesome for people also like me that love music and like want to learn more about the DJ game and and kind of respect uh, that part of music. So just kind of going to where it became like an idea to now it's going to be released in... Sure. uh, Yeah. Well, here's the key thing. Like, you know, I I just started filming um, about five or six... uh, No, at at the very beginning, probably, let's see, it was 2015, so I probably started filming uh, 2009-ish. And um, I didn't have any plan. I just, it, it was a new situation where the roast thing was new and the crowds were bigger and the clubs were fancier. And, and I just kind of wanted to get footage of it. So I wasn't thinking of doing the film, but I filmed a lot. And, you know, no matter where I was in the world, I always had a small camera with me and I would pull it out and, you know, I'd get crowds and, you know, um, performances and, you know, interacting with, with fans or whatever. And then as I started to go through it, and I'm looking at the stuff and I'm thinking, it's kind of there's something here, right? You know, so what we initially were going to do, uh, me and the guy who was the original videographer, we were going to do 24 hours in the life of Rose. This is probably 2011 when we had that idea, and it it wasn't going to be a documentary. It's just going to be like um, a day in a life thing. Well, the more we started to film, and the more I started to write, and kind of it, the personality of it changed. And what I decided to do, because I watched David Gutter's movie and I watched Sweetest South Mafia's, both of their documentaries and Hartwell's documentary, and really I've seen every DJ documentary, be it YouTube or something I could purchase, um, that's out. And the one thing that I noticed was that every single one of them told the, the DJ story of a superstar DJ, from like the David Gutter, the big guys, right? And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, how does the guy who's in – his mom's basement. Like, I mean, he, could, he might he could dream of this, but how does he relate to it? And that's when the idea of I Am Roast became um, a documentary because what I decided to do, rather than tell a story from 30,000 feet, which was what these guys were doing, 
we decided to tell the story from 1,000 feet. We wanted to tell it from the ground. So we wanted to show the lifestyle of someone who is booking his own gigs, and he loses gigs sometimes, and, um, you know, the time doing sponsorships and how those sponsorships came about, and, you know, live performances and, 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 and you know, people, testimonials from people who have known me for a long time from the hip-hop side, uh, people who do business with me at large clubs. Uh, we wanted to really kind of show what it really looks like, like not not this shiny, pretty, I'm a perfect rich DJ because I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not that. <laughs> I am probably just like 85% of the people who will watch this documentary. So it just became one of those things where we wanted to fill that space that told a DJ story that was a little more relatable. And it, and it wasn't being sold to an audience from a standpoint of, hey, look at me. It's being told from the standpoint of, you can do this too. And let me show you how I did it kind of thing, if that makes sense. So it goes all the way from the beginning of my DJ career, and then it starts to foreshadow the end of it, which is really cool because, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is this is actually my last year of DJing. And um, when I say that to people, a lot of times they're like, you know, what are you talking about? But I surpassed everything I wanted to do years ago. So at this point, it's not that I don't have goals. I mean, like, you know, I'm staying to the Olympics. The Olympics are in, in my um, second home country, uh, Brazil, in summer, and that's going to be my, my retirement party. But for me, I want this documentary to be a swan song and it's neatly coming about at the end of my career. So I know you say you haven't seen it, but you haven't seen it because it's not out. What we decided to do is initially it was going to come out in 2013, and then unfortunately my dad passed, and uh, I decided to um, take a break for a minute and kind of recalibrate after that because the storyline changed because I had to – I was referencing him in the, in the movie, and I was trying to finish it so he could see it. And then with him passing, the tenor of the movie changed. So we decided just to hold off a little bit and get rid of some things, and I changed directors. And the movie that we're producing now, I'm very proud of it. I, I, I feel as if that um, if you're someone who's new, if you're someone who's midway and trying to figure out how to get to the next step, there's something there for everybody. And a lot of people stop by. DJ Chucky's in there, and um, T Pain's in there, and you know uh, Christina Milian's in there. Um, you know, there's a bunch of people that are in it, and uh, I just think it, it, it's it's very different, it's very unique. And with me being at a point where I'm ready to call it a, a day on my career, it's a great thing to have as my swan song. So um, right now we're looking at first quarter of 2016. There'll be uh, a new trailer that'll drop probably New Year's Day, but um. I think people will get a lot out of it. I'm really excited about it, and I'm and I'm happy to be able to um, to put something out there like, like that to uh, engage um, the next generation. That's awesome. So, Thanks. in terms of that being dropped, is it going to be actually in theaters, or is it going to be like where like Netflix? Like, where will we be able to possibly see well, it? See, here's the thing about that. You know, we we've had and we're still in discussions with all of that, and. I'll just be honest about this. Um, the initial conversation was with, um, uh, I don't know if I should say the name, but I'll say it anyway. I was with HBO. And that, we decided not to go that route. And there's a reason we decided to not do that. I want to make the film that I want to make. So what that means is all of the music that's in it, I don't have the rights to. 
you know, and it would be a situation that if we did the HBO or the Netflix or something of that nature, that we're going to have to license all of that music, which is going to cost us a fortune, and most of it we're probably not going to get. So that being said, what we've decided to do, since most people are actually consuming their, their content via mobile platforms, we're going to do the festival circuit, and then we're going to release it for free on mobile um, platforms. So it'll be a situation where it'll be uh, debuted on my website, and then it'll be available on Vimeo, Vivo, and um, and uh, YouTube. For cause I want as many people to see it as possible. I don't want I don't want to charge anybody for it because I don't want to pay anybody their licensing fee for the music. I I want to release the music. I mean I want because you got to understand. I come from an era where we made mixtapes and we took music from all different types of sources and we created a product and we put it out there and either we sold it on the street corner or we gave it away for free, right? So I'm looking at the movie the same exact way. I want to source the music that I want to use in the movie. I want to source, you know, everything that I want without having to license any of it and put it out for consumption. And so that's what we decided to do. Um, now, because I've been bitten by the film Bug, the second go-round, because there will be a second film, and I, you know, I can't really go into what that'll be. It'll be DJ-oriented, but that one will be done the traditional way where the music will be either original music or we license it, and we will go through the HBOs and things of that nature. But in order for everybody that I would like to see this film to see the film, I'm going to give it away. Well, that's awesome. I look forward to it. I'm pretty. I mean, I like I said, I've seen the the trailer that's on your website, so I, I'm right. stoked. So, all right. Well, I appreciate that I, so much. Uh, no, not a problem. Um, like I said, I've been on, been keeping up with you for years now. So, um, before I let you go, I do want to let the listeners of the podcast know where they can find you and find out more information on you. So I know your website is iamross.com, correct? Right, right. And to be honest with you, what I like to do is send everyone to that website. The reason being is because all of my other social media portals are accessible through the website. And so that's my social hub. It's www.iamros.com, and that's I-A-M-R-O-S.com. Um, yeah, log on, and, you know, you can, you can contact me directly there via email. Uh, shoot me an email, and, you know, if people enjoy the mixes, you can download mixes there as well. All of my pictures are there, uh, background of who I am, and, a lot of my history is there. So, you know, it's a new website we launched this year. We're very excited about it. And as I said earlier, the actual film will debut on the website first. So we're going to drive everybody to the website first, and then uh, you'll be able to see it after that on, on portals, uh, mo- uh, mobile portals uh, all over the place. All right. Well, you heard it here first, everybody. Go to his website. I've already been on it. but um, Very cool. I- I I look forward to seeing the documentary when it comes out and probably the beginning of next year. So thanks again for joining my podcast. And like I said, we'll probably have to do this again soon when Absolutely. more projects arise and yep. we want to just chat a little bit more about music and the business. So, again, I, I thank you for joining my podcast. And um, I also want to mention, too, like I mentioned in a previous podcast, you've also written some things for my blog, Love the Music Project. So. Yep. Um, now you can kind of put the voice and the wisdom to those uh, posts if you have read them already, or if you haven't read them, feel free to go back um, and read those. So, again, uh, I want to thank you, Rose, for joining me, and, and yeah, I'll talk to you in the future, and ha- have a great evening. Or thank you so night. much for having me. Thank you so much. Same to you. Take care, right. everyone. Bye. Bye.